0: Good morning, everyone. Kids who are headed to Gospel Project have a great time. Thank you especially to those who teach each week. If you don't know, our kids go through a a curriculum that takes them over a three-year period of time through the major stories in the Bible with a particular aim to helping them understand how each story reflects Christ. So thank you to the large number of you who are helpful in that process. Today we'll be in John 15 you're new with us, we've been working our way through uh, John, kind of passage by passage each week, and we have made it uh, thus far to this point, John 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you, and uh, feel free to look up in the table of contents where John is and take that Bible with you if you don't have one of your own. By way of introduction, a few uh, questions for you, and um, this is one of those passages that Don't know how it can be done a justice. It's just such a brilliant, beautiful passage. So I hope that what Tad prayed for us this morning would be true. How does an angry person become gentle? How does that happen? How does a fearful warrior become as immovable as a rock, regardless of circumstances? How does a man overcome with lust, addicted to pornography, become a man who sees uh, women as equals, not as objects? How does a hoarder become a giver? How does an adult with toddler-like selfishness become authentically selfless? How does a coward become courageous in evangelism? How does a critical gossiper become a passionate prayer? Well, John 15 is going to show us uh, today. Priscilla, would you come and read for us from John chapter 15? Good morning.
1: Good morning. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But this, my Father, is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to me to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another.
0: Thank you, Priscilla. Friends, if you want to genuinely change, of all the things you need to have happen, one of them is we need a complete revolution in the way that we think. You and I are hardwired and enculturated To believe in our own self-sufficiency, to believe we can change ourselves. The uh, autonomous self would be the mascot of our day if there was one. Uh, This message is literally everywhere we turn. You are what you make yourself and you can make yourself whatever you want to be. Think back over the previous uh, seven days how many times through however many mediums you have met, that you've heard that message. This message is everywhere. It's everywhere except in the Bible. God says that fallen human beings are insufficient and incapable, that we can do nothing of spiritual significance on our own, that we can, in fact, not change ourselves. We can't come become what we, in fact, are not. We have no genuine power to transform ourselves from the inside out. We may be able to develop new habits that externally make us appear different, but we cannot, in fact, change our insides. So what do we need? We need a life source from outside of us to be given to us. We need a change from the inside out. We need to be rescued from our spiritual deadness. We need a new life source, a new hope, a new power, new relationships, a new source from which to draw spiritual nourishment. The great news that we have this morning is that that exists. That, in fact, is what the Bible is mainly about. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Theologians like to summarize this idea under the heading of something that they call union with Christ. A great book I read last summer talks about this uh, this way, a, a paragraph summarizing it will be on the screens. It says, against the prevailing mindset of our day, you are what you make yourself. Union with Christ tells you that you can discover your real self only in relation to the one who has made you. You are not, you cannot be, self-made. Union with Christ tells you that you can only understand who you are in communion with God and others. Friends, John 15 gets at this most wonderful of spiritual realities through a metaphor. The metaphor of a vine... And its branches. And the main idea that Jesus presented in this passage to his disciples is quite simply that abiding in Christ results in fruitful love. Now, what does it look like to be united to Jesus and to remain connected to Jesus? And what will the results of that union be? Well, Jesus says that abiding in Christ results in fruitful love love. This morning, as we consider these verses that Priscilla read for us, we will do so under the heading of uh, two couplets. I've been working a long time to work that word in, couplets. We'll consider this under two ideas. One, that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. So we'll just consider what the metaphor itself means. And then second, we'll see together that Abiding is the command in this text, and fruitfulness is the consequence or the result. So first, let's look at the metaphor itself. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. If you've been with us the last several months together, you've noticed that throughout the Gospel of John, John has held up uh, seven different metaphors through which Jesus has said, I am this and what he's doing is he's saying i am so wonderful powerful amazing life changing that the only way to really get at the essence of who i am is to hold up a series of different pictures because no one picture can adequately express the wonder of the character of jesus he has said that i am the bread of life i'm the light of the world i'm the door of the sheep i'm the good shepherd I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And today we come to the last of these images in the Gospel of John. I am the vine. Perhaps as the disciples left that upper room where they had been observing the Passover meal, and Jesus took them that evening on a walk toward where they would eventually end up in the Garden of Gethsemane, Perhaps as they walked together along this journey, they came across a vineyard, and maybe Jesus stopped, and he held a a branch in his hands. He gathered the disciples around him, and he used that quite common sight in ancient Israel to teach a powerful lesson. Now, what is it that this brilliant metaphor of spiritual fruitfulness is meant to illustrate to us? Well, one obvious point being made is that Jesus is the life source of every Christian. Jesus is the connection point upon which everything good flows. Jesus is saying, in essence, if you want to change, if you want to experience a completely different quality of life, if you want to have a life of joy and meaning, if you want to have a life that isn't fruitless but is in fact fruitful, then you've got to get connected to me. Jesus doesn't list a long, drawn-out list of commands in which he says, do this and do this and do this and do this and do this. And once you've done all those things, then perhaps you can squeak into a relationship with me. That is, in fact, many many times what churches teach. Stop this and start this, and eventually, if you do that enough, you can receive my love. You can have a fruitful life. No, that's not Christianity. Jesus says, what you in fact need is to be grafted in, is to be connected back to the source of that which is truly life, Jesus himself. What you need is to get connected to me and keep drawing life from me. I, as far as I know, none of us in the room are uh, farmers, and even more so, none of us are, uh, what is the word for a, a vine ecologist? What? Vintners? Vintners. All right. Impressive. <laughs> Do you have some experience with this beyond drinking the fruit of the vine? <clears throat> Most of us have little to no experience with whatever that word is she said. But but what is the picture Meant to illustrate. Well, think of it from what, as kids, we would have experienced. Perhaps you went camping and you saw trees. We have few of these around here. And perhaps you had a sword fight with sticks. The sticks, once they are disconnected from the tree, are destined to do what? To die. They're going to become hard and brittle And good for nothing, other than a stick fight, only to be broken, only to end up in the campfire. They are no longer connected to that from which they can draw life. Friends, that's the way human beings are. Unless we are connected to the spiritual life source, Jesus, then we, in fact, cannot do that for which we were born. We cannot be fruitful. So Jesus is saying what you need is not to follow quite apart from me an external set of rules. What you need is by grace to be grafted back in to the life source. Just like a vine needs its sap to run into a branch, and that branch only bears life to the extent that the sap from the vine is flowing into the branch. That's what you need in order to have life. Friends, if we would change, if we would find those habits we know are bad, but we very often pretend they're not there. If we would find the raw, rough edges of our character being gradually, patiently whittled down into something more Christ-like if we would find that the habits we would love to develop but simply don't have the power to do so, if those things would be happening in our lives and happening in a joyful, peaceful, loving way, it would be happening only because the life of Christ is flowing within us. How does that happen? Well, it happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we are spiritually dead But by belief in Jesus and his life being given to us, we can bear much fruit. Certainly that is something of what Jesus meant in this great image. But I think there's more. And the more is is something occasionally, perhaps frequently, is easy to miss. Now look at verse 1 with me again. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Why the word true? Friends, Old Testament worship, that first two-thirds of your Bible, was largely centered around uh, worshiping in a particular place. That place was in the temple in Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, God providentially caused his presence to be mainly harnessed and centered within a particular place. It was a place full of symbolism meant to illustrate the fact of his goodness, his power, his grace, his holiness. And that place was the temple in Jerusalem. Everything around, at, and in the temple was enormously significant. To pointing forward to Jesus. Now, these images very often are found in the parts of the Bible that seem the most strange to us, the most culturally removed from us. So, books like uh, Leviticus, in which it seems that whoever wrote that had been drinking too much fruit of the vine. And yet, these images are all meant to point us forward to understand what, in fact, we would be offered in the life of Jesus. And so powerful and common were these metaphors, these images, that over time, the Jews, in fact, kept adding to them. One of them I learned this week that I knew nothing about was that at the time of Jesus, on the outside of the actual structure of the temple, so not the walls around it, but the actual building itself, what was called the holy place, on the outside of the holy place, was an enormous golden vine. Josephus, the great ancient Jewish historian, so not a Christian, wrote around the time of Jesus a whole lot of things. One of them was information about the temple. And he said this about the outside of the temple. I didn't write it on the screen because I want you to try to imagine it instead of reading it. He said, the gate that was at the end of the first part of the house, meaning the entrance into the temple, as we've already observed, over all of this, the gate was covered with gold. It also had above it golden vines from which there were clusters of grapes that hung as tall as a man's So imagine this building, this enormous, huge building. Something of a skyscraper as we would think of it today. And hanging from this building were vines so large that there were golden grapes as tall as a man. Now, why? Why the vine and why the grapes? Before we get to that, Think of the geography of the area. Jesus would have been with his disciples up at a higher elevation. And they were headed down through what's called the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is a very compact geographical area. It's very likely that as the disciples were taking this walk in the evening, they could have been watching, seeing this enormous vine, on the temple. Maybe Jesus was even standing pointing to it as he told this story. But why the vine? Well, the answer to that lies back in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter five, verse seven says, The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's army. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. Now, I know none of you got up this morning coming hoping for a lesson in ancient Israel's plants. But the significance here for us today is incredibly powerful. Every American knows what we mean when we talk about the stars and stripes. What's that referring to? The flag. It, it's a symbol of our nation in and of itself. Much like the stars and stripes remind us of our history, of our nation, for those of us that are Americans, the vine would have done that for Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, were pictured as a vineyard. And the image meant something like this. God rescued us in the book of Exodus. God rescued us out of slavery in Egypt where we could bear no fruit. He led us out into the wilderness. He taught us what it meant to live as his people. And then he brought us into a perfect land, the land of Israel, which symbolized being in God's blessings, where we could grow and flourish as the people of God. But on a whole the nation of Israel did not, in fact, bear the fruit that God had for them. Despite His good grace and His love and His mercy and His tenacious power being dedicated to them, they did not remain faithful to Him. And so interestingly, almost every time the image of the vineyard of God is used in the Old Testament, it's used to show Israel's lack of fruitfulness. So text like the one we just read, if we pull out further and look at the verses around it. Isaiah 5. Now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fruitful hill. Who's the beloved? It's God. God talks about his people in a romantic way. Now that's weird for us because uh, we have gone so sexually crazy that we can't think of romance apart from sex. But there is in fact more, particularly husbands, you should hear this, there is more to romance than sex. Jesus uses the Father, God, the Spirit, uses romance to talk about how he feels about his people. Now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a winepress into the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes. But the grapes that grew were bitter. Now you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines will not be pruned and the ground is not hoed a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no rain. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the lords of heaven army. The people of Judah are a pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected it to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. Friends, God graciously took care of the people of Israel. And in response to his goodness to them, instead of being a people of justice, a people of righteousness, a people of uprightness, they in fact acted like everybody else. Think about how that must have made God Friend, you will never understand the seriousness of sin if you only see it as breaking rules. You will only understand the significance of sin if you see it as breaking God's heart. Because just like a spouse would be broken hearted, over the other spouse sleeping around. God is brokenhearted over his people sleeping around. That's what sin is. It's cheating on God. Israel did not remain faithful to God, and so he he disciplined them repeatedly in hopes of seeing them repent and return. There's many other passages that talk like this. Let me show you just one. Psalm 80. Turn us again to yourself, O God of heaven's armies. Make your face shine on us. Only then will we be saved. You brought us out of Egypt like a grapevine. You drove away the pagan nations and transplanted us into your land. You cleared the ground for us, and we took root and filled the land. Our shade covered the mountains, and our branch covered the mighty cedars. We spread our branches west to the Mediterranean Sea. Our shoots spread east to the Euphrates River. You're talking about the sense of being welcomed into Israel under God's blessings and experiencing enormous growth, happiness, joy, peace, the things you and I all long for. But then, in a time of ease, they forgot God. But now why have you broken down our walls, so that all who pass by may steal our fruit? The wild boar from the forest devours it, and the wild animals feed on it. Come back, we beg you, O God of heaven's army, look down from heaven and see our plight. Take care of this grapevine that you yourself have planted, this sun that you have raised for yourself, for we are chopped up and burned by our enemies. May we perish at the sight of your frown. Strengthen the man you love, the son of your choice. Then we will never abandon you again. Revive us so that we can call in your name once more. Turn us again to yourself, O Lord of heaven's armies. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. This was the great, endless cycle of the Old Testament. God in His grace and mercy would move on behalf of His people. He would bless them immensely. They would, for a very short amount of time, worship Him, be faithful to Him, delight in Him. And then they would wander away again to a horror. God would discipline them. And some would, in fact, repent, and it would start over and over and over again Now, before you turn your nose up at them, hold up a mirror. This is, in fact, our great temptation as well. When the goodness of God fills our hearts, it is so easy to, in fact, be satisfied with that fullness and not in Him. So Israel was the vineyard that didn't bear fruit. And here's the most astonishing thing of all, the reason I went into all of that. God didn't destroy his vineyard. He didn't wash his hands of them. He didn't give up. He didn't say, I'm done with all of you forever. He didn't divorce his own become embittered and remain alone. Oh, no. Despite our sleeping around, he remained loving. And he gave grace in the most unimaginable way. You see, God didn't give up on this covenant relationship with his people. No, he fulfilled it himself. Jesus is the true, vine. Meaning, Jesus came to do what Israel was supposed to have done. They were the vine that was supposed to willfully, intentionally, albeit imperfectly, but dependently draw their life from God and bear the fruit of godly relationships and justice and righteousness. And yet they didn't. So why did Jesus come? Jesus came to live the life that Israel was supposed to have lived. He came himself to fulfill the covenant. Jesus obeyed, and he bore good fruit. So that all who, for then on, would be connected to him would receive his covenant fulfillment, would receive His good fruit, would receive His life, would be grafted into Him. You are not shouting, but you ought to be. This is the most amazing news. Jesus is the true vine. Therefore, if you are grafted into Him, brother and sister, then all that Jesus did has been credited to you. And all that you didn't do has been credited to Jesus so that as He died in your place, He took all that you were supposed to have done and gave you all that you didn't do. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you are hearing the very heart of God. That God did for sinners what sinners were supposed to do for themselves so that sinners could be welcomed into a relationship with Him. Does Christianity come with rules? Absolutely. But those rules flow out of the status of already being given a right relationship with God. And so we obey because we love. We obey because we're amazed at what he's done for us, not to get something from him. Jesus is the true vine, and we are the branches. That's what this image is all about. That's what the metaphor is designed to communicate. Now, why does a branch exist? For one reason and one reason only. The branch exists to bear fruit. Christian, you are not around to spend your life doing whatever it is you want to do. You exist to bear fruit for God. That is the reason you are saved. That is the joyous, wonderful, shocking reason For your existence and your salvation is to bear good fruit for God. That brings us to our second set of ideas. Abiding is the command, and fruitfulness is the consequence. If you look at verse 4 and then again at verse 9 and 10, you'll see it say that, that we are, in fact, to abide. Abide isn't a word we use ever. But it is, in fact, a very critical word to understanding the nature of your relationship with God. To abide simply means to remain. It means to dwell. It means to linger long. Jesus says, remain in me. Friends, you must nurture your relationship with God. If you are to remain in him and bear much fruit. That might seem to be obvious on the surface, but it is in fact difficult to do in daily life, isn't it? It is easy to have the experience of becoming a Christian, of the light of the gospel shining in our hearts, it making sense that we are alienated from Him by our sin, God's grace flooding us, His love overwhelming us. We turn from sin and turn to Him. We're given a whole new life. But then, just like the Israelites did, we begin to wander away into our own self-dependency, enjoying the fruit but forgetting the vine. That's so easy. And so Jesus says, you've got to remain in me. What does that mean? It means we've got to live with a self conscious, intentional, daily dependency upon God. The most miserable people I know are Christians trying to live independent of Jesus. It cannot be done. And so God, because He loves you, will allow you to feel the brunt of trying to live without Him so that you will be drawn back into a loving relationship and dependency upon Him. We are not called to live lives, Christians, of self-help and self-improvement. You are not a fixer-upper. God bulldozed you and started over. And so you've got to rely on Him every single day. But the question, of course, is how? How do we actually practically do that? There are many, many ways, but this text, if we slow down, actually gives us five ways to abide. Let me just walk, them through, walk through them with you briefly. Number one, this text teaches us to trust God as we consciously live in His love and in His word we need to daily remind ourselves of the love of God, a love that's grander and greater and more intimate and more powerful than any other love we will ever experience. Better than the love between husband and wife, better than the love between mother and child, because it's a perfect love, is the love of God for His people. So when you wake up tomorrow morning before your feet hit the floor, tell yourself, I am loved by God. Even with my stinky breath and my bedhead, I am loved by God. Even with my carnal, awful thoughts about my desire to be unproductive and simply remain in my bed, today I want instead to remain in the love of God. And do whatever it is He will bring my way to bless people today. Start the day remaining in the love of God. Now what's going to help you do that? Well, you get your cup of coffee and you get your Bible. And you open it. And you open it to have a conversation with God. To linger in His Word and hear from Him. So we remain in the Word of God in order to remain in the love of God. A second thing this text tells us to do is to pray. Prayer is, quite simply, continuing a conversation that God started in His Word. It's never begun by us. God acts first. So in prayer, we're responding to what God says, continuing the conversation that He started with us. In particular, this passage says to be praying for the things that lead to fruit. So, God today helped me to display a life that looks like Jesus. God, help me to notice the people I come across at work, at the gym, at school, in the grocery store. Help me to notice people that could use a kind word. That could use a generous gesture, that could use the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of praying that John 15 is talking about. And Jesus actually promises that kind of praying leads to fruit. How encouraging is that? Guaranteed answers to prayer. Number three, this text tells us to accept the Father's wise pruning. Now, this one hurts. What does the vine dresser do to his vineyard? Well, he's constantly walking up and down the long aisles of vines. And he's tending to them. And the branches that are dead, that are not bearing any fruit... Cuts them off and throws them away. Why? So that they don't negatively impact the rest of the vine. So that they don't suck something of the life source to no fruit. But what about the vines with, what about the branches with vines on them? Does he just leave them? No. He takes the ones that are starting to get droopy and he he lifts them up. He ties them back to the trellis. And then he takes the pruning knife and where little shoots are beginning to develop that will, in fact, not bear fruit. And so they're drawing from the sap, taking from what will produce the fruit. He cuts them off because he's cruel and mean. No, because he wants the fruitful to bear more fruit. Friends, the Christians who make the most difference in the world for Christ will be the Christians who have felt the sting of the vine dresser's knife the most. Jesus says, As his branches, the Father will be pruning you and pruning me so that we would bear more fruit. So, when there are hard things in our lives, we don't bemoan them and complain about them and wallow in guilt and shame and pity and complaint about them. We say, Bring it on because I want to bear fruit cut away, take anything from me that will not in fact produce a closer, more Christ-like life. Number four, we bear, we abide by obeying God's commands. Christian, is there anything in your life that you know I am willfully rejecting what God says about this and doing the opposite. If so, the way to remain in God is to stop it and to ask other brothers and sisters for help to walk side by side with you because it's hard to stop stuff, isn't it? And finally, we love sacrificially. The reason the next paragraph is in your Bible is because abiding in God produces, at its very essence, a love. A love for God, and because there's a love for God, a love for people. The Christians who are remaining the closest to Jesus are not the ones with gobs and gobs and gobs of theological knowledge and big words who sit in ivory towers. They are, in fact, normal, common, everyday people who display the supernatural love of God in how they treat each other. Now, what will come from obeying the command to abide? In other words, what's the consequence, not in a negative sense, but in a positive sense? What does the command bring about? If you remain... What are you promised? What's the fruit? Well, brothers and sisters, we were born and then even more reborn to be productive. We live in an odd time when you compare our lives to the way most people have thought about life in the history of humanity. We are overrun with leisure. We think The goal in life is to make as much money as you can so you can quit working as soon as you can so you can fart around for the rest of your life. And all of life seems to be consumed with, I want to do nothing. I want to play golf, sit at the beach, watch Netflix, whatever it is your thing is. Now, is there anything wrong with a hobby? Of course not but we've lost hobby and become hobbits. Jesus says, if you want joy and peace in life, if you want what you in fact were made for, then you've got to see fruit as the goal. But what is the fruit? That, of course, is the dominant question we've got to answer in our remaining two or three minutes. Certainly, friends, part of the fruit that the Bible would teach us to seek is the fruit of evangelism and discipleship, the fruit of seeing more churches planted and revitalized. It's normal that a Christian would be sharing the gospel with other people and would be hanging out with people who are Christians in order to help them grow up. That's why we put so much emphasis as a church not on formal programs but on brothers and sisters hanging out together helping each other grow up in Christ because this is the essential part of our relationships that we long to see God produce is more and more fruit. That is a frequent part of the fruit metaphor used throughout the Bible but I don't think it's mainly what Jesus is talking about here there is another kind of fruit. And it's the fruit more often talked about. It's the fruit of a Christ-like character. It's the fruit of being transformed ourselves. It's the fruit of what would your Monday look like if Jesus was walking around in your shoes? Because he is. That's the fruit Jesus promised would result from abiding in Him. It's the the growth of holiness, of Christ-likeness. The clearest place we see this in the Scriptures is Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Brother or sister, can you look back two years ago to your daily life today and see progress in the display of those qualities in your life. Not because you've focused in on, i got to become more patient. I keep ripping my kids' heads off. Not that, although that's good. But I've got to abide, remain, love Jesus more because he's such a wonderful Savior for me. And that produces patience. That's what the fruit is in John 15. Jesus promises that vine abiding produces fruit bearing. So in closing, let's circle back to where we started. How does an angry person become gentle? Quit nudging your neighbor. How does a fearful worrier become as immovable as a rock? How does a man overcome with lust? Learn to think of women as equals, not as objects. How does a hoarder become a giver? How does an adult with toddler-like selfishness become authentically selfish, selfless? How does a coward become courageous and bold in evangelism? How does a critical gossiper become a life-giving passionate prayer. Well, in a word, abiding. Friend, if you abide in Jesus, there is nothing about you that the power of the Spirit cannot change. What a tremendous message of Let's be a church full of members who rest in the love of God and who help each other remain in the love of God. That we might be a freakish display of a supernatural God to a city so desperately in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, we, as brothers and sisters, repent of our lack of abiding. Thank you for the forgiveness offered us in Christ. I pray before my brothers and sisters leave this room, particularly...